You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Thank you, Brother Terry, and good evening, beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Of course, this is our second class in dealing with the man Joseph in what we've styled the Gentile times, and what is now going to lead toward that period of time. We left off last week, of course, in uh, Genesis 37, with him being rejected of his brothers, sold like Judas Iscariot, sold Christ by Judah, and put down into a pit. And we're now going to enter in the period where he is ultimately going to be exalted by Pharaoh himself. But before that happens, he's subject to Egyptian servitude. That's a little element in the, again, as Brother Thomas calls it, the Josephine parable that can get biased pretty quickly. But before that happens, remember this, his exaltation, He's subject to servitude in the Egyptian house. And just these quick statements from our statement of faith that that emphasize the fact that the Lord was in the condemned line of all those who went before him. He wore their condemned nature. He was filled with the spirit. He was God manifest in the flesh, article number 10. But he did share a like nature with all of us being made of a woman. And he was subject to that death that had been passed upon all men the law of sin and death. We certainly know that from our statement of faith. I'll just remember that and what Brother Terry has read for us. Because he has not yet been exalted, but after his brethren rejected him, he's brought down to Egypt. It's a lower period of status to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. It's not Pharaoh, but it's Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, Captain of the guard, the Egyptian, he's the one that bought him to the hand of the Ishmaelites. Now, Yahweh was with Joseph, we read verse 2. He was a prosperous man, but he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And you know what that means in the allegory of Galatians chapter 4, who Hagar the Egyptian represents. So he is in this position as a man. Yahweh's with him. He's strengthened by Yahweh. He's filled with the spirit. He's tempted at all points like you and I. But he's in this position where he is the servant of an Egyptian who is actually also a servant of Pharaoh, who, as we know, represents Yahweh. And as we have at the bottom notes, and we're going to just unfortunately, because the bulk of them move quickly through the notes, but you'll have them there for printouts for markup later will suggest to you that he typifies the law of which Christ was subject, but not an offender, the law of sin and death. As Elpis Israel says, the law of sin and death is hereditary, magnified by the law of Moses, which manifested, manifested sin, and given strength, but it's derived from the federal sinner of the race. You will know what Brother Roberts has to say about that in the law of Moses. So his master saw 
that Yahweh's with his Egyptian master saw that Yahweh was with him. And that Yahweh made all that he did to prosper in his hand. In this significant word is introduced that Joseph found grace in his sight and served him, and he made him overseer over his house and put all into his hand. Now we have the principles of the house entering in. We know that the house, as you and I understand it, is the ecclesial house of Christ superior to the Mosaic house. Paul talks about that when he's talking about the law and Christ. He's higher than the angels, initially made lower, Hebrews 1 and 2, and then Hebrews 3. He goes into that Moses barely was faithful in all this house as a servant. But then he says Christ is a son over his own house, whose house are we, of course, if we maintain the truth unto the end. So this whole principle of the Mosaic house and the Christ house is very, very important. He's subject to this Egyptian servitude in this period of time. And we'll see what the introduction of the unfaithful woman in that house entices, intends to entice Joseph to sin. Of which he rejects it. And in what form that takes place. And it represents the Jews, the unfaithful bride of Yahweh. For you to that end. It came to pass from that time that he made him overseer of his house and all that they had. Yahweh blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, and the blessing of Yahweh was upon all that he had in the house. Remember, Christ came not to disannul, but to fulfill the law. That is its principles, the spirit of it, but not just the letter of it. And the blessing of Yahweh was upon all that he had in his house, and he left all that he had in Joseph's hand. And he was a goodly person, and he was well-favored. So this is the position of Joseph, typical of Christ. In this position of being subservient to an Egyptian rule. Before he is exalted. And this, by the way, is the reward of Christ. Where he gets the headship of the house, the ecclesia of the living God. It came to pass after these things, we'll pick up in verse 7, where Brother uh, Terry had read through. Now, verse 7, we know what enters the record, because we're very familiar. After these things, after it talks about this man being faithful in the house of Potiphar, the Egyptian master, he did fulfill the law. He was subject to the law, and he fulfilled it. What the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did. He did it through his son. As Brother Roberts talks about in the Law of Moses, he didn't do it by just completely taking away and, and ignoring it. He did it by fulfilling it. But in this house, his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, saying, Lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wanteth not. What is with me in the house? He's committed all that he has into my hand. There is none greater in the house than I am. He's kept nothing back from me. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's very, very significant, brothers and sisters. Because we know those who talk about love in the brotherhood all the time, talk about 
loving the brethren as if it is the first commandment. The thing that will hold us back from sin is offense against God. So here is this man refusing the enticement of the wife in that house, the unfaithful Jews, as they are so styled by the prophets, the unfaithful wife of Yahweh. You will know the scriptures I'm referring to that speak to that end. He's dedicated to the master, subject to the Egyptian law, and he will not offend Yahweh. He will not sin against God. And she spake to Joseph day by day, and he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or even to be with her. They daily tempted him. They daily tried to seek means by which they could accuse him. Daily they did it. And that's what the New Testament says. That's what it says. He didn't even entertain or act upon it. He didn't lie by her. He wouldn't even be with her. The Lord Jesus Christ was truly separate from sinners, like you and I cannot comprehend. He was subject to the law of sin and death, but he would not lie by it or even be with it as a matter of principle. He was in all points like us, yet without sin. He never obeyed the propensities of that, ever, one time. And, you know, we've talked about this before. Every man is tempted, drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. In James chapter 1, and brothers and sisters, our statement of faith never applies that to Christ. That's not what brought Christ into the grave. And that he conceived lust, and then it brought forth sin, and then sin brought forth death. That is not what brought Christ to the grave. Our statement of faith says what brought him to the grave. He was in the same condemned line as Adam and all those after him. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, of course. And it came to pass at that time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men in the house there with him. And that is absolutely true. No man served Yahweh like this man. No man fulfilled the law of the Egyptian master like the Lord Jesus Christ. He is doing the master's business in the house. So we have to be very, very careful about how fixed Christ was on doing the work of his father. We have to be very fixed on that. And the two principal acceptations of sin, sin as in transgression, and then sin as it relates to our nature. We have to separate those when it concerns the Lord Jesus Christ. All men forsook him. He was literally alone. And of course he said, but I'm not alone. The father is with me. But certainly morally and mentally, he was left completely alone, even his disciples forsook him. And here's the interesting thing, and you can trace this yourself. She caught hold of his garment. Now, in the corresponding narrative that is given here by inspiration, she talks about, behold, here is the garment. He tried to force himself upon me. That word garment is used six times. And he left his garment in her hand. We, the quote from our statement of faith, Article 8, Article 10, and it's in many other places, we do not deny that the Lord shared our nature and that he was made subject to the law of sin and death. 
It says he fled and left the garment in his hand. He fled from sin. He was separate from sinners, but he absolutely, and we know the garment, what it represents concerning our nature. He was in her hand. That he did possess the same as you and I. This garment, not the fact of actual transgression, is what's going to take him to the prison house. It's this garment that is going to take him to that state. Subject to the law of sin and death, a servant of the Egyptian master. Before he's exalted, himself, Yahweh, taken up from the grave, this is what transpires in the Josephine parable. And that, of course, of course is your quote from Alphys Israel. The two principal acceptations of sin, transgression of the law, and then the physical principle of the animal nature. Christ absolutely possessed the physical principle of the animal nature. He was not a transgressor of the law. And we know all about the clothing as it's represented in Joshua, Zechariah Zachari 3, as it's represented in 2 Corinthians 5, in Matthew and Hebrews, on and on and on. So it came to pass when she saw that he had left the garment in her hand and was fled forth. And this is what Brother Mansfield says in the expositor, H.P. Mansfield. Isn't it very remarkable the way the type foreshadowed the antitype? The Lord was constantly subjected to the temptation by the lewd wife of Yahweh, which, by the way, when you go to the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, Matthew 4, Luke chapter 4, every single time Christ is tempted, it's always the Jews who tempted the gospel records. If thou be the son of God, every time he has asked that question and the question of him being the son of the God, it is the Jews that ask that question. And what did they want? They sought a sign, which is exactly what the devil and Satan, political and religious, desired of him. And he immediately quoted the scripture and dispatched it, as we have Christ here. He was ever cautious of sin. He fled from it. So we have to be very careful, brothers and sisters, that we don't take sin as it represented in it, it absolutely was in the physical nature of Christ. And we move that into the moral arena of, well, he thought the same that we did. No, he did not. There was no man with him in the house. He was not subject and did not fall prey, having conceived the lusts, things that we do, as James says. We do it all the time. He did not. And of course, Elpis Israel, sin is a synonym for human nature. This is being forgotten, and therefore it's regarded as unclean. Can a clean thing be brought out of an unclean? Job. So Christ was unclean as the people that he came to save. He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. He shared our nature. And she spake unto him according to these words and said, The Hebrew servant which thou has brought unto us, came in to mock me. Oh, that is so significant. Read the section when you have time. Really, just the first few pages of the consecration of Aaron and his sons in the Law of Moses by Robert Roberts, where he is very, very wisely dealing with the subject matter before us and how he condemns sin in the flesh how he destroyed flesh and blood, him that had the power of death. 
And of course, flesh and blood is what he meets in the prison house and the emblems of the bread and the wine. It behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. He didn't come to mock us. It behooved him so that he's a merciful high priest. He was in all ways made like unto us so that he can have compassion. He did not come to mock us. He condemned sin in the flesh. And therefore, a carnal person represented by this wife, the Jews under the law, will see it as such. But that was not the case. And we know this by scriptures. People are self-condemned. You know, the world tries to do that. Christadelphians sometimes. Oh, well, you're judgmental. You know, we don't have to be judgmental. We're self-condemned. This is the condemnation. God didn't send his son to condemn the world, but to save it. But that's a process. And that process of saving it is embracing the light to have our deeds exposed. But men loved darkness rather than light. Therefore, this is the condemnation that came upon them. Luke 7, the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves. 2 Timothy, in meekness, instruct those that oppose themselves. They're self-condemned. They're self-rejected. It's not a judgment you and I are issuing out. So Joseph's master took him. Not the woman. She represents the enticement of sin. We've already noted what Potiphar, the Egyptian master, subject to the law of sin and death. That's who took him and put him in prison. And Potiphar, by the way, and you can check it, I've done it through various references, means he was the chief of the executioners. Why didn't he execute He didn't. He was given a very unique burial in the place where the, not even the common prison, the place where the king's prisoners were bound. And he was there in the prison as a prisoner inside that place where the king's prisoners are. He was appointed unto death. And we know what prison represents. We've already dealt with this in other studies. That's why when we look at Joseph's master taking him and putting there and what he represents and what the lewd wife represents, the temptation of sin in Scripture, and you know how that's used in Proverbs, taking the simple man, that is not what put him in the grave, brothers and sisters. We have to separate those principles. Our statement of faith does it very, very cleanly. But we just have to be familiar with that and remember that. And that's why, of course, we quote Eureka here. The spirit is very exact in use of words. We like to generalize the scripture. When we break it apart very, very specifically, it gets cleaner in its doctrine. And Yahweh was with Joseph in the prison and showed him mercy. Mercy is a covenant of things under Christ. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. This is a man whose death, the prison house, is unique from all others. His favor is so great 
the grave can't hold him. He announces himself in the apocalypse as the one who has the keys over the grave and death. That's how unique his death is, because he's not a transgressor. He is subject to the nature that you and I are, but not a transgressor. And the keeper of the pr prison committed to Joseph and all the other prisoners that are in the king's prison. That's you and I, brothers and sisters. We're committed into the hands of someone who partook of like nature as you and I, who was given the keys to the grave and death, who will be exalted from that prison house remarkably. And what does 1 Peter 3? Christ once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, and he will do that. Watch what happens in the Josephine parable. Being put to death in the flesh, Joseph's master put him there, not the lewd wife. But quickened by the spirit, he's resurrected, by which he also went preached unto the spirits in prison. He preached to the spirits in prison. And you know that's a metaphor. How many times does Brother Roberts emphasize that in his debate with Brother Andrew? You cannot separate Christ from the race he came to redeem. Well, yeah, but what if he, there wasn't a race? Well, Brother Robert said, you, but you can't. You can't consider Christ apart from the race. That's why he came. It's, it's, it's a hypothetical that doesn't exist or we're never asked to consider. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand, not just in the Egyptian house, now in the prison. Here it is again, because Yahweh was with him. It's used three times here regarding Joseph. And Yahweh made to do everything to prosper in his hand. His death was not in vain. So he goes to the grave. Now we understand, brothers and sisters, there are many exhortations that come from this. He was a real man in a real situation, of which I'm quite certain all of us would say, we aren't even an equal task of Joseph, let alone Christ, certainly not Christ. We're not denying that he's not a real man in a real situation. But so strongly was his character that he reflects that of Christ. And that's that rhetorical prophetic statement in Isaiah 49. I've labored in vain, spent my strength for nothing. I said in the hour that formed me from the mood to be a servant to bring again. Oh, if you think it's a light thing to be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel, I will also give thee light to the Gentiles to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. His labor is not in vain. His prosperity and all that Yahweh has put in his hand is going to come to light very shortly. Because it comes to pass in Genesis chapter 40, verse 1, after these things, do this in remembrance of me. After the death of Christ, under the breaking of bread of the emblems, and the butler of the king of Egypt, and the baker of the bread and the wine, offended it's the same word, sin, chata, to fall short. Their Lord, the king of Egypt, boy, don't we? 
Pharaoh was wroth against two of his officers, against the chief of the butlers, against the chief of the bakers. He put them in ward in the house of the captain of the guard into the prison. Massive prison in the very place where Joseph was bound, tying those two men to the place where Joseph is bound. We don't even need to mention how this represents Christ. All we need to know is about this word wrath, because it is not meant that the punishment that should have been leveled to us has fallen on Christ. And that's how the churches render that. Is that which was due us is laid on Christ. Again, the Bible serves as its own dictionary. And again, I went through this with an elder brother at the time, knowing this was the scriptural reference. Pharaoh was wroth, and these men, the butler and the baker, are now brought into the place where Joseph is bound, tying the principles with him. How is that phrase used in scripture? The law worketh wrath. Where no law is, there is no transgression. It is used to represent the sentence of sin and death from which men must be redeemed. Romans 5. God commended his love towards us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for all. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. It's salvation from death is what it means. Ephesians 2. We had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. Just let the Bible be its own dictionary. 1 Thessalonians 5. God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ. God is said, typical in Pharaoh, has set in motion a plan of redemption. And that is identified with Joseph in the prison house and the bread and the wine. And they dreamed a dream, both of them. So this is prophetic. We've already addressed that in Genesis 37. Both of them in one night. The two are one dream. The butler and the baker. And Joseph came to them in the morning, the dream is in the night, the revelation is in the morning. And we know what happens at night. A man is at rest from all the carnal activities of the day, all the fleshly activities, and the spirit can then lift him up in the things of the truth. And we have that all throughout the prophetic word. But in the morning comes light and the enlightenment specifically of Christ. He is the son of righteousness, the light of truth. He is the answer to prophetic dark things. And they said unto him, we have dreamed a dream and there is no interpreter. Joseph giving all honor to Yahweh. And he says, do not all interpretations belong to God. Tell me then, which is putting a different phrase to this. It tells you that Joseph understands these are prophecies. And that Joseph can interpret them. Because what Joseph himself has already dreamed has partially come to pass.
God will do nothing unless he reveals his secret unto his servants. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ was his righteous servant. Tell them to me. This is the man through the butler and the baker that is the answer for all the law, prophets, and psalms. He is the key to unlock all the scriptures that pointed forward to this event of the butler and the baker. It was this death and resurrection that unlocked all scriptural understanding. And this is a screen just for your notes. We're going to have to move on. And the chief butler told his dream to Joseph. And he said, in my dream, there was a vine. We know what this means. Before me, the vine, three branches, they budded, brought forth their blossoms. We know this represents the flesh and the blood. But they shoot forth like Aaron's rod. There's a resurrection. And he takes the, who is his sacrifice for Christ? It's for Yahweh. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. He was the man whom Yahweh made strong for himself. He was God manifested in the flesh, bringing all things unto him. I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup. It's the salvation of men, Brother Roberts, for God. And I gave the cup to Pharaoh's hands. And by the way, verse 12, the three branches of the three days. And he said, well, in three days, you'll be lifted up and you'll be restored to your place. It's the number of covenant and of sacrifice. He's brought again from the dead through the blood of the everlasting covenant. We know that from Hebrews 13, verse 20. And I'm sorry, again, this is a bit of a, I don't even know that color. I'll just call it pink for, sorry, gentlemen. I'll call it pink for time's sake. These are just extra notes that I have. It's maybe light purple. I don't know. That's got a color. I just don't know what it is. My wife could tell you. The chief baker saw the interpretation, of course, that it was good. He said, my dream was, remember, what does the bread represent? This is my flesh, said Christ. But it has white baskets on the head. There was no problem with the thinking of Yahweh's anointed. There's no problem with his thinking. His mind was in harmony with Yahweh. And in it were filled all manner of baked meats for Pharaoh, just like the wine was pressed out in the hand in the cup of Pharaoh. And they were on his head. The problem was the nature that he shared. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up thy head from thee, and he will hang thee on a tree. And we know that a tree represents human nature. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. The bread, the flesh is hanging on a tree. The wine, the blood of the everlasting covenant, is where he is exalted and restored unto the king. Okay. So you know all this, a sinless man made subject to the consequence of sin. Law of Moses. And it came to pass the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday. Now, wait a minute. There was a man that died here because it says that the chief baker is killed. Verse 22, he's hanged, but the chief butler is restored. But it's also a birthday. So in death, we've talked about this before, is birth. 
Death to the flesh is birth to the new man, but it's a birth unto Pharaoh. No longer living unto ourselves, Romans chapter 6, but living unto God and do all good things. And he makes a feast for his servants. This is a sacrifice that's going to benefit all the servants. And what happens? The chief butler, verse 23, remembers Joseph. Not, but he forgot him. What you and I have been doing for 2,000 years, he forgot him. It was a sacrifice that was operative on himself. First, he is the beginning of the new creation, law of Moses. He will be the first to rise out of this prison house. So he restores the chief butler to his butlership, and he gave the cup into Pharaoh's hand. The death of Christ has more to do with the exaltation of God. You know I'm quoting from Brother Roberts. And you know, I could rightly call, uh, call on John Thomas as well. It's God manifestation, not human salvation. It's the exaltation of God more than the salvation of man. That's what it's all about. God was in Christ to reconcile the world unto himself. He's the man, the son of the right hand, who God made strong for himself to bring salvation unto God. He's redeeming a people for himself so that when he's lifted up, it doesn't say he's running about serving the servants of Pharaoh. Yes, he does that, brothers and sisters, by proxy of the principle. But he's Yahweh's servant. That's what Christ is. And it came to pass in the end of two full years, Pharaoh dreamed a dream. This is now another repetition of dreams. It started off with Joseph. It went to the butler and the baker. Now it is, and isn't that how we piece the scriptures together? The prophetic word is actually a lot of prophets quoting each other. It's a lot of the apostles in Christ quoting parts of the prophetic word and assembling them. That's Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three. In many ways and diverse manners, the scriptures were given unto us in many parts and pieces. And that's why there's partial quotes of very, very, if you go back and get the context of them, valuable scriptures throughout the word so that we go back and study them, piece them together. And we know what the two full years represents. Because look at what is going to transpire now here. In this condition now of the new covenant, came to pass in the morning his spirit was troubled he sent and called for the wise men of the world and really even the law couldn't do this in the type of egypt as the law of moses and all the wise men are assembled there and pharaoh told him his dream and none could interpret it there is nothing like an understanding of the truth as Brother Terry said, as introductory comments in prayer, what greater thing would we do on a day like today than just take an hour out and study the truth? What greater thing could we possibly do? What understanding the testimony of one does, the testimony of the word does for the sound mind and the surety of where we're going, it's the answer for all the political, legal, economic, government systems of this world, religious systems, all which are corrupted answers all of those. And just like Nebuchadnezzar, who does the same thing and assembles all his wise men, even as they tried during the time of Pharaoh, 
and Moses to duplicate them. They cannot. It requires the truth and the truth only to decipher this system. The natural man cannot understand them. They have all the same tools that we do. We have, brothers and sisters, nothing more than a King James Bible. We are doing nothing more than quoting scriptures. We're not saying, well, if you go over to translation over here, you try this translation, well, what it really means here. Yes, some of that heightens it. But we've got a King James version of the Bible, an authorized version that was written by men. And because we know the truth, we can understand it. And that's what Brother Thomas says. It's not that they don't have access to all of that. It's because they don't comprehend and understand and believe the truth that is hid from them. That's the latter part of the quote that I have on that screen. And why? Because we don't just reason in facts. It's not, as we said before, just because the word Trinity or immortal soul or purgatory or any of that nonsense is not in the scripture or the Pope. It's because the principles never found. We don't even find the types of the allegories of those things being taught. So he couldn't interpret it. And there was only one that was able to do that. Only one that was worthy to open that book. Now notice what Brother Thomas says in Eureka. The apocalypse is represented as a book in the right hand of God, completely sealed up. When John saw the book, he heard the voice. He said, who's worthy to loose the seals? No man or angel came forward. No man, says John, in heaven or earth can do it. None under the earth to unloose it and see it. He was exceedingly distressed at this. The words in the book that Daniel had been commanded to shut up and seal, no man in heaven or earth or grave was found worthy and able to open it. And then the chief butler says unto Pharaoh, I remember my faults this day. There is a young man, a Hebrew, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him and he interpreted our dreams. To each man according to his dream did he interpret. It came to pass as he interpreted to us, so it was. He restored my office. And him he hanged. All the words before Christ died and was resurrected were inspired words. The words that he spake were completely sent by his father and were taught by the father. Everything that he expounded to the Jews was a right division of the truth of the law and the prophets and the Psalms and the fulfillment of it. This is different. Pharaoh sends and calls for Joseph to bring him out of the dungeon hastily, and there's a change of nature. Remember the garment that she held hold of? He shaves himself, which means Cleansing and purifying, you'll get that under the law. You all know it as well as I do. And changed his raiment. He's now brought up from the area of the butler and the baker and the principles of the three days associated with them out of death. And there's a change of nature. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I've dreamed a dream, there's none that can interpret. I've heard it say of thee that thou canst understand the dream. 
When was Christ given the apocalypse? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show his servants the things that will shortly come to pass. He sent and he signified. The eternal spirit then imparted to Jesus after his glorification, the time, seasons, and mode and circumstances, which by the way, brethren, let me just suggest this. Oftentimes brethren will quote that concerning Christ before this knowledge was given to him. Well, it's not for us to know the times and seasons. Christ said that. Now, wait a minute. That's before he was glorified. When he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and all angels and principalities and powers and all authority given unto him, he was not constrained. All of which constituted revelation such had not yet, he had not yet been subject of. Next quote, verse 15. It's very beginning pages of Eureka. This was not the purpose for which it was given, simply as it were to make the Son equal in knowledge with the Father and more intelligent with the angels. It was given to him as head of the body of the Ecclesia, the apocalypse of his future, was given to him for their benefit, that they might know the things it will accomplish speedily. And he says, go back to the top of the screen. It is not in me, just like Daniel said. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar king. Oh, it is not in me. I am, I am no different than any other man. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. And it's called the gospel of peace. There is no peace like knowing the truth and the things that are going to come to pass. I told the magicians they couldn't declare it because the wisdom of this world is foolishness. Human theatrics aren't going to do it, brothers and sisters. Little object lessons and little analogies outside of the Bible aren't the same expounding the truth. They're just not the same as making plain the interpretation of the scriptures. They tried it in Babylon. They tried it with Pharaoh before Moses, and it just fall short. And you know, or someone might make a decent analogy and comparative principle, but it's not spirit interpretation of the word. The doctrine of the kingdom is the key to unlock the mysteries. So, we read this. The dream of Pharaoh is one. God has shown Pharaoh what's going to happen. So this is something that is futuristic of which now becomes an enlightenment to the saints. Seven thin and ill-favored kind. After them, seven years, seven empty, blasted. Then the seven years of famine. The dream was deviled, given unto Pharaoh twice, because the same is established by God. Which is, by the way, oftentimes why you have quotations of other scriptures. It's just to solidify it. And that's exactly the language of the apocalypse things that God will shortly bring to pass. We just quoted it in the Apocalypse chapter 1, verse 1. Why 7? Just happens to be the number of the Apocalypse. 
And where is he now? He's in the house of the Gentiles. That's the apocalypse. It's the answer of the Gentile times. It's why these sevens are given to Pharaoh and why sevens dominate, dominate the apocalypse. It's considering the time when the kingdom of God has been thrown down. It's the times of the Gentiles until it's reestablished. And the seventh angel sounded and said, the kingdoms of this world have become kingdoms of our Lord and of God. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh look out a man so wise and discreet over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint officers in the land to take up a fifth part of the land for the seven plenteous years. And this is a great comment from Brother Mansfield in the Expositor. It required sacrifice of the people to store up against that day. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> required sacrifice. Joseph suggests the people be asked to sacrifice in the years of plenty that they can draw on at the time of one. And of course, he talks about the spiritual principle associated with that. Excuse me. So Pharaoh said to the servants, can we find such a man as this in the spirit of God is? Pharaoh says, for as much as God has showed thee all this, there is no so discreet as wise. Thou shalt be over my house. Well, then now, brothers and sisters, that is not the Mosaic house of which he was a servant in Potiphar's house in Egypt. This is one where he's been exalted from the prison house, and he's now over Pharaoh's house. According to thy words, shall all the people be ruled. All things in heaven and earth, according to thy word. Only in the throne will I be greater. How many times have we found that? Whether it's Mordecai, whether it's Joseph, whether it's somebody else. It's not just that the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. The principles of the Trinity don't appear. There is always one higher in the throne. There is only always one supreme who exalts a suffering servant to a position who's given reward. Always that principle. And he's over the ecclesia of the living God. And he sets in verse 41 over all the land of Egypt. Go into all the world. No longer just the house of Israel. He's over all the land of the Egyptians. Just like Mordecai in the book of Esther, when it's taken from the hand of Haman and put on the hand of Mordecai, he takes his ring of authority from his hand and he puts it on Joseph's hand and his vestures of fine linen. He's now clothed with the same nature and the gold chain upon his neck. And he rides in the second chariot. Again, brothers and sisters, Christ is not Yahweh. But Yahweh cries and commands, bow the knee. I've made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. He is not part of the Trinity, but he was given authority by Yahweh over all things. Given a name, suffering lower than the angels, but now given a name above every angel. 
That's what Hebrews chapter one and two say. Now over Pharaoh's house, the ecclesia of the living God. He came in the father's name. Christ was and is not self-exalted like the Pharisees were. He was glorified by the father. And by the way, by glorifying the son, the father himself was glorified and Christ said that. If you love the father, you would love me because he glorifies the son. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name, Zaphnath Paneah, and I know I butchered that, but you understand the principle. And now the religious element comes in. And he's given him the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On. And Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. And that word, that Egyptian name, is in different translations for us, depending on what you look. They all, of course, represent the truth. Savior of the world, treasury of the glorious rest. It's a title used in his principal application now of him, as it says, now in a religious element, his wife is the daughter of the priest, where he's reigning over the land of Egypt, the times of the Gentiles. The mystery of the Gentiles now being revealed. And he's over that land. And he's the revealer of secrets, which some give that name to imply. All of those, by the way, are good meanings. And I will just add this to you. It's, a, um, it's something that Brother C.C. Walker says. How do we know sometimes when there's conflict of the name? We know it by application of type. And I'm paraphrasing what C.C. Walker says. And you might be familiar with it. I think it's in the Ministry of the Prophets that he says this. Well, how do we, Cyrus is the context, one like under the air. Well, how do we know? We get different translations. He said the one that is corresponding with the principles of the truth already in the context is the one that determines the proper context of that name. Because you can go to some just out of nowhere and somebody will give one of those names in different translations. So how do we know which one? The one that conforms to the truth, he says. Well, lo and behold, he's 30 years old and he stood before Pharaoh. And he goes out from the presence of Pharaoh and he went out through all the land of Egypt. It's the time when David began to reign. He went into a far country to get for himself a kingdom. It's the time when the priesthood and those that served under the Levitical order. And the gospel's now gone off. And the seven plenteous years of the earth brought forth in handfuls. It's the very word used throughout the law of Moses representing the offering of the people to bring the priest to mediate on their behalf, letting bring handfuls to the priest to offer unto Yahweh. Here he is in the mediator position in a second chariot unto Pharaoh, but given authority by Pharaoh to rule all the land. And this, by the way, that sorry, I had it here. There's the quote from C.C. Walker dealing with this. Egyptian name given unto him. So brothers and sisters, that's what we'll leave off uh, for our study today. Of this man that is first subject to the Mosaic law of sin and death, taken into the dungeon house, the prison, the baker and the butler. One is hanged on a tree, the flesh, put to death. The blood of the everlasting covenant, the wine, restores him. When he is called now 
to serve and ultimately reign over Pharaoh's house, the Ecclesia, there's a change of nature. He changes his garment and he shaves himself and the apocalypse is given unto the Messiah. Revelation chapter one, verse one. And he is now given the interpretation of the dreams that only Pharaoh, Yahweh himself knows, just like the Lord Jesus Christ. So God willing, next week, we'll pick up there in the Josephine parable. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.